Well, hello, good morning. My name is uh, Toby, and I am one of the pastors here at Renewal. Uh, I will remind you of this. There's a uh, water bottle in your seat that is straight from the rivers of Nicaragua. You do not want to drink that. Um, it might not what fare well on you later this afternoon. Uh, no, I'm just playing. That is yours as a gift to you to help you remember to pray for uh, the mission trip to Nicaragua that is coming up in August. I just thought that would be funny because you never drink water in a foreign country. Some of you got it, some of you didn't. All right, today we are starting a new series, um, and we're calling it DNA. And the reason that we're calling it DNA is because we're going to go over our five core values, which uh, most of you see this every single week as you walk down the hall here. And today, my task is to do the gospel transformation. And um, I love the gospel. I'm excited that I get to teach this one to start this series off. I, um, you know, we've been, if you've been here with us the last, I don't know, last year, we've been in a series called Beautiful Chaos going through 1 Corinthians and uh, it's been a really sweet time to be able to uh, dissect that, that book, and um, God's challenged us in, in several different ways. And so as we transition over to a DNA series, which basically is just what we believe, um, I think it's going to be good. So if you have a copy of God's Word, if you don't, there's several that are laying around in the back right on the, the uh, connection table, and uh, please get a copy of that, or, or however you read the Word, I want to encourage you to find Ephesians chapter 2, and then hold your place there and go to Luke chapter 7. We're going to be in both of these uh, passages for just a little bit uh, here this, this morning. Now, in, in, in thinking about this series and thinking about gospel transformation, um, as you think about it, it's really what we view about, about sin and salvation. Now, Ephesians 2 tells us uh, he... the Paul is very, very explicit with his assessment of uh, our, our sin. He says in the very first verse, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now this is a very grim assessment that we have to think about. And it reminds me of a story. If you were to go to a doctor today, and as you're visiting with the doctor, you, you go and tell your doctor, I have a headache. My head has been hurting for for, for, for many weeks, he prescribes you, or he tells you to go take aspirin and then drink a glass of wine tonight, and you'll probably be better tomorrow. If he were to tell you that, and then you turn out to have a brain tumor, he underdiagnosed your problem. And it's the same thing with sin. When we underdiagnose sin, we come up with the wrong cure, just as the headache is a... If you have a brain tumor, and the doctor gives you medicine and stuff for a headache, and you have a tumor, it's a deadly, deadly thing. And um, getting hit with bad news opens the door to the right cure. And ultimately, it delivers a life-giving cure. Having an accurate assessment of the problem helps you figure out what's going on. And the problem a lot of times with faith and religion is that a lot of times it's just underdiagnosed. It underestimates the problem and therefore does not come up with an accurate cure. And Paul here in Ephesians gives us a diagnosis. The problem with sin. 
And he gives us a cure for that. And so I want to talk three, three things today, real quick, three things about how um, we can have a radical cure for a radical sin. So let's pray, and then uh, we'll begin. God, thank you for loving us today. Thank you for um, the worship through song. It was just sweet, and God, we're just grateful to be able to sing and to uh, praise you. God, thank you for these folks that are here today. Thank you that, um, God, we get to worship you freely in spirit and in truth. And God, I pray as we uh, just continue to, to look into your word, I pray that it just be sweet to us and that you would um, open up our minds and open up our hearts and allow us just to see you. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 2, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And when you used to live and you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That is the bad news. It is terrible and hopeless news. Thankfully, thankfully, it isn't the end of the story. Verse 4, you ought to underline in your Bible. I think it's one of the sweetest verses in the entire Bible. But because of his great love for us, God, who rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace have you been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in, heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show his incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace have you been saved, through faith, not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So the very first thing that we see is radical sin and radical salvation. Now when I was in college, I tried to paint myself a picture of what sin looked like. And um, I'm no artist by any means. Um, and Trevor kind of helped me do this. And uh, here's, here's, here's the picture of, uh, of sin. We are all in a sea of sin. Now this right here looks really good compared to my drawing that I gave Trevor to do. Okay? But we're all in a sea of sin. And and uh, it, it, this really helps me understand uh, just a, a proper understanding of what sin is, okay? So in this sea of sin, it, I mean, sin's a, a Bible word for what's wrong with us and what's wrong with the entire world, okay? And, and it's a sea. It's an image of chaos. It's an image of, of, of death. And left on your own in sin you're going to die, okay? So I want you to picture in your heads this big sea, and um, if we're left on our own in this sea, we're going we're gonna to die, okay? 
So um, in this sea, there's, of course, you see there's a boat. And I'm going to call that the boat of salvation. All right? Now, this is a safe place. This here is a, a place where we're free from sin, or at least the devastating consequences of sin. Okay? It's this boat. And um, so, so here's the deal. I'm going to lump every um, religious view, not just Christian, together and that say that some people have a very mild view of sin. A very mild view of, uh, of, of sin. It's, it's like when, when, when you're a kid and uh, you're sitting out on a deck of, of, at the swimming pool or sitting down by the side of the pool and you tell your kids, hey, don't put your feet in the water. You ever done that, parents? Don't put your feet in the water because you're going to get your shoes wet. And the next thing they know, they're kicking the water with their feet, and they're kicking it, and they're, they're dabbling in what you told them not to do. Okay? Don't dangle over the edge of the water. You're going to get your feet wet. And eventually what happens? Their whole shoes are soaking wet when you come and get them, and you say, Don't put, I told you not to put your feet in the water. And here's a lot of people's view of sin. We're sitting on the side of a swimming pool or on a deck in a lake, and we're just dangling in the water, dangling our feet in the water, getting them, getting them wet, and we really don't think much about it. But when we view sin as serious as God views sin, it changes things. Or in my mind it does, anyway. A moderate view of sin is when you take it a, a step further, okay? I'm on, the, I'm on the deck, and literally, I have fallen overboard, and I'm in that sea of sin, and I'm in real trouble, and I'm dying in danger and chaos. The little dude to the right of the boat is that guy, okay? This is just a moderate view of sin. This guy here needs help. He needs rescued, okay? And so... This moderate view, you take it a step further, you're dangling over the edge, and then you see yourself like this guy here is to the right of our picture. You're in that sea of sin, you're in real trouble, you're in danger of dying in all the chaos, you need help. Then there's a radical view of sin. And actually, it's not you bobbing water to the side... A radical view of sin is the dude that's laying down on the bottom. Did you give him eyes, Trevor? <laughs> Looks like he's got eyes on it from me. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. X's. Eyes. That's cool. So, a radical view of sin, you're not bobbing up and down on the water. You're actually dead at the bottom of the, of, of the sea. You, you don't have a pulse. You are, you are decaying, you are dying, okay? This view, this radical view, is an image of what the Bible says, that you're dead in your trespasses and sin. It's a little bit more severe. It's way more severe than just falling off the boat. You're dead at the bottom of the sea. And here's the deal. Your view of sin, your view of sin defines your view of a Savior. Just as, my, uh, just as correct as a diagnosis of a disease determines the right 
dose of medicine to treat that disease. If you have a tumor, you don't need an aspirin in red wine. You need major stuff. And if, if, and if you look up at the boat, um, you'll, you'll really see the kind of Savior you need, okay, that's needed. If you have a mild view of sin, your only problem is that you have splashed your soul with a little sin. And what you need is a good example to follow. Well, Jesus is that example. He is a good example to follow. So you decide to follow Jesus, to do hard work and change in yourselves, and you'll be saved, right? Adam had this view of sin, but Adam's view of this is a bad example. You don't follow the sinful example of Adam, you follow the good example of Jesus. And Jesus is a good example. He's so much more a better example because our sin is so much worse than you probably think it is, and it needs more than just a good example. Our sin, my sin, needs more than just a good example of sin. So the moderate view of sin, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's far more biblical, and it requires a Savior who does more than just stands up on top of the boat and sees you in the sea of sin and throws you a life preserver, it's a moderate view. He, he throws it. He, he, Jesus is our helper, so he throws you the lifeline, the ultimate life saver he is. And he gives us help when uh, he, he gives us help, and we need um, him to die on the cross. He gives us forgiveness for jumping overboard, which we all have done, and uh, jumping away from God to the sea of, of sin. He forgives us. We're in trouble. We know that. We need help. We grab that lifeline and we hold on to Jesus for salvation. Moderate view of sin. Now, the radical view of sin requires a radical response from God. So God sends Jesus, His one and only Son, into the world of this sin, of the sea of sin. This is the incarnation Jesus being born um, humble into a sinful world, he comes down to our level, immersed down to our level. So you see this, the dude at the bottom of the ocean will never ever rise to the top of the ocean unless God does something about it. God has to come to him and not the other way around. And a lot of times my view of that has been different. If I just do better, if I do good, if I hang out with enough good people, God's going to accept that somehow. But the Bible says here in Ephesians that I'm dead to sin. When he reaches us here, in this example, if you're dead at the bottom of the ocean, he breathes life into you. The Holy Spirit here is oxygen for your soul. And so he brings life back to want something that was dead. Or as our passage says here that we just read, He makes us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Now this radical view of sin is the biblical view of sin. It's what the Bible teaches us about sin, not the moderate one. I know that you know, there, there's a lot of times that, that we kind of 
or I know I do, I minimize sin. I'm sitting on that deck or I'm sitting by that swimming pool and I'm dangling my feet in it. And uh, I, I minimize it or, or I pretend that, you know, I'm on the sun deck just splashing aimlessly in the air and everything's fine, everything's good. And I, and I have to realize that, man, you know, God's God whose judgment is perfect says that the very thing that I'm playing with is killing me. And that's my sin. The very thing that is going to leave me for dead is my sin, and I treat it so like it doesn't really matter. And God hates our sin. Your view of sin affects and defines your view of salvation. And so as you think about, hey, where am I in this, in this picture? This passage lays it out so clearly, and it applies it so personally, too. As for you, you're dead in your transgressions and sins. 1 John 1.8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Today in my mind as I was reading over this, I'm thinking, man, I'm not, I, will never, I will not get anything out of this sermon unless I realize that the stick figure at the bottom of the ocean is me. Or it has been you at one time in your life. That you realize that you were that dude at the bottom of the ocean. And you cannot get to God unless he comes to you. Verse 3 says, All of us also lived among them. Those disobedient, the objects of God's wrath at one time. Given that we're all sinners, sin is far more serious then we probably imagine that it is. And we come to church and we dress up and we do the routine and we go to work and we still do the routine and we laugh at it in a back room or we laugh at it some other place. And here's the deal, folks. You don't need good advice. We need radical good news. You just don't need help. We need God to breathe life into us. We need new life. If that's you today, you need new life. You don't need to come to church more. You don't need to fix yourselves. You need Jesus to breathe life into you. You need to be born again in order to move from death to life. Because here's ultimately the reality. A little bit of help for the dude on the bottom is still no good. <laughs> A little bit of advice, hey, if you would just do this, it's still not going to matter. And the radical view of sin is us, you, laying at the bottom of the ocean. I mean, there's plenty of people that want to give us advice. There's a lot of people that want to come to our help. But there's only one Savior. Salvation is... It's unlimited in that it's offered to everyone and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But there's only one way to the surface. There's not another way. There's only one way to the surface, one way to escape the sea of sin. And that's the person of Jesus. It doesn't happen any other way. 
1 Timothy 2, 5-6 through 6 say this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for many. A mediator is that go-between. It's that go-between, someone who represents both sides. It's Jesus, the eternal God. He, he left heaven, became a man in order to go-between, be that mediator, that scapegoat. If you want to say that, that only mediator, he and he alone gives life. He's the only one that gives life. Why? Because he was able to live a sinless life and offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He paid the price. He did what God demanded for the payment for sin. He's the one that does it. No other sacrifice, no other way to uh, uh, salvation but God. And given this reality of this radical sin, this, this death, and this radical salvation, the credit has to go to someone, right? Something. The, 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 the credit goes to grace. And that's our second thing today. It goes to grace. It's God alone. It can't go to us because we're at the bottom of the sea of sin. You can't get credit for your salvation. You didn't earn your salvation. You didn't do anything to, de to deserve that. The credit goes to God. It's to, it's to grace. We, we, if you have this radical view of sin, then you understand that uh, at, there, there's got to be a point that you are passively concurring with God that you have no hope without Him. You have no hope. We are dead in our sin. Then someone breathes spiritual life into us and awoken us. The Bible calls that regeneration. You're born again. And according to this passage, that someone is God. God did that. God brought you. If you're born again today, and you understand the depth of your sin and your hopelessness without Him, God did that. Now you respond to that, but God did that. This, this passage, listen to it, verses 4 and 5. But because of His great love for us, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were, what? Dead in our transgressions. Do you understand the word dead? Do you know what that means? If I had a dead body in front of me right here, and I started making fun of the dead person laying in front of me, what would happen? Nothing, right? He didn't hear that. He's dead. I could go down there and punch him. He still would not feel it. Why? Because he's dead. He's lifeless. He has no life in him. So too are you without Jesus. We're Dead is what the Bible says. But this passage also clearly identifies who is responsible for bringing us up to the service, to the surface. And God raised us up in Christ and seated us with Him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Verse 6 there. So the point of this passage is to emphasize grace. Just to emphasize grace. Misplaced credit 
on you or somebody else that got you to God opens the door to pride and boasting. If we do anything to deserve or earn our salvation, we open the door to the pride. We elevate ourselves and we demote God. And so as you're thinking about what we're talking about today, how does that resonate on your heart? What did you do to find God? Where are you in the story? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For it is by grace have you been saved through faith, and this is not yourselves, and it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You know, one of the, one of the biggest points about dwelling on our salvation is, man, it's to highlight who God is. And I love to hear when somebody's sharing their testimony or something, and they, they, they start off the saying like this, hey, so when, when did you become a when did you become a Christian? Well, God saved me when I was 18. And they put the emphasis on God and not on themselves. You ever heard anybody do that? And they, they, they put all the focus on all this stuff and then God. They got a right, radical view of salvation when you can come to the table and go, you know what? God did this and not me. It wasn't because I was brought up in a cool family. It wasn't because they brought me to church. It was God who did this. And the reason I think uh, that's a biblical view of our salvation is because God gets the praise for that, and not me, or not you. He gets the praise for that. It's by grace have you been saved, Ephesians 2.5. One way to say it is that it's only grace. It's 100% grace. I like sharing this story um, when I'm talking to people about, about the Lord. and um, I, I think we've got to define what grace is. I think some people have a... You, I mean, grace is getting something that you don't deserve. And I understand that. But um, I come up with a little story, and some of you have heard this because you're in the room when I've shared it before. But um, here, here's my view of... Of, of grace. Let's just pretend. This is only pretending. It's not real. It didn't happen. And I pray it never does. But let's pretend that somebody breaks into my house tonight. And kills my family. Okay? Let's say they killed my family. Let's say the dude that killed my family. They catch him. They put him on trial. He's guilty as charged, if he were to even make it to trial, okay? He's guilty as charged. He goes to jail for life, okay? That's justice, right? That'd be justice. Same dude. He's guilty. He's proven guilty. Um, he gets his sentence. And I say, hey, you know what? 20 years is good enough. Don't send him to jail for life. That's mercy, that's me giving him mercy. So you got justice, he goes to jail and he rots in prison. That would be justice, okay? Same sentence, but you add mercy on it, just do it for 20 years and not for life. Grace is this, he's guilty as charged. There's some mercy there, let's do 20 years. Grace is, hey, I forgive the dude. He's forgiven. I forgive him what he's done, but grace is that dude now becomes a part of my family. 
and I treat him as he's a part of my family. Now that's grace. Somebody that could do that to your family, and then you forgive him, you pardon him, and he moves in with me, and I treat him as a brother, that's grace. You know why that's grace? Because all of you are God-haters when you're born. We don't say stuff like that because it's not very encouraging, is it? But that's exactly what the Bible says that we are. We, We don't have a love for God. God puts that love for Him in your hearts. You guys that worship God in spirit and in truth, God's put that in your heart to love Him and to love Him even more. You see somebody that's just totally in love with Jesus, man, man they, they're connecting with God. He initiated that. And here's the deal. If we don't get the concept of grace, pride will take over in our souls and we will become nasty religious people if we don't understand grace. Nasty, religious people. But if we get the concept of grace and our salvation, then love and service is going to transform us into beautiful religious people. And we get it. Love and grace go together. It goes together. Flip over to Luke 7. And that's not on your screens, okay? Luke 7, flip over there. In Luke 7, you meet a woman who basically crashes a dinner party hosted by Simon the Pharisee. That's at the end of the chapter. And, and she, was, she was the town center. She, she, she wept with her tears and she washed Jesus' feet. And um, you, you see that she poured perfume on his feet and she kissed him and Jesus offered her forgiveness of her many sins, and uh, she pointed out, or, or Anne pointed out to the self-righteous Simon guy that um, he had shown no love to Jesus there in that story, okay? So Jesus takes the opportunity to teach verse 47 here to this lady and to this Pharisee named Simon. He says this, but he who has been forgiving Little, love, little. He who has been forgiven little, loves little. And those who have been forgiven much, love much. So here's the kicker. If you're a Christian, you're forgiven much here today. Nothing else brings you joy that ought to bring you joy. And you're loved by the one who forgives us and cleanses us. Every sin, sins of omission, sins you've committed, sins that rage in the secret places of your heart that nobody else knows about. They're forgiven. Rebelliousness is forgiven. Sins of your childhood, sins of your teenage years. Sins you'll commit tomorrow and sins that you'll commit on the day that you die. They're forgiven. They're forgiven. Why? Because God sent Jesus, immersed him into the sea of sin to save our souls. He did that. He's the one that does that. And he forgives big 
forgives so big. Even my future sins, all are forgiven in Jesus. Now, sin is radical. Salvation is even more radical. And when we start to get that concept, we become less like the self-righteous Simon that's in that story in Luke chapter 7 and more like the weeping woman with the perfume wanting nothing more than to stand by Jesus expecting nothing but just to be able to serve him. That's all she was wanting to do. Wasn't expecting nothing. And Jesus told her what? Your sins are forgiven. They're forgiven. Expecting nothing, even with the tears in our hair. Expecting nothing. And listen, we become more loving people and greater servants when we get the concept of grace. If I could grab a hold of grace today, really like I told you in that story, I'd be super loving. I want that. I mean, I, I, truly, I truly want that. And I know that in my mind, or I, or I go to this. This is the last thing. I go to this. Um, and it just made me think about, well, what about, what about faith? Where, is, where does faith play into that? It's by grace through faith that someone knows God, and that's how the gospel transforms their lives. And if I've learned anything from this sermon, is that faith is basically showing up. Just it, 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 it's showing up. Faith is not work. It, it's not work. Read, read the text. It's not work. Faith is it, it's showing up and saying, I need what you have, Jesus. I need that. And accepting it as a free gift. Look at how, look at how faith and works are uh, contrasted. In the text. For by grace have you been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. Let me ask you this. Do you need do you need do you need faith to accept the gift of salvation that's freely offered to you? A yes, that's the answer to that question. Absolutely. You need faith to respond to Jesus. You have to. It's in the text. By grace through faith. So you have to have that. At some point in your lives, if you're a believer, when the Spirit has breathed life into your soul, taking your heart of stone and making it making it flesh, you respond to faith to God. That's grace that allowed that. You, you respond by faith to God's grace. You know, the, the Bible never identifies faith as anything more than a response to grace. I just, I just don't see it. Faith, faith isn't something that we do, work. It's just saying, here I am, a sinner, and I need what you have. And something clicks in your heart, and you know that it's truth. And you know that it's real. Some of you are going back in your brains and going, yes, I knew that that's exactly, when I responded to Christ, that's exactly how it happened. It was just clicked. And then that dude at the bottom of the sea got up and swam to the boat of salvation and experienced God's grace 
through faith. Through faith. Here's the deal. Faith is no more a work than a child opening a present on Christmas Day earns that present by unwrapping it. It's a gift. I didn't earn that present by unwrapping my present on my birthday or at Christmas. It's a gift. It's a, it's, it's a free gift. It's a free gift. It's just accepting what is 100% a gift from God. From Him. Now that's good news. Because our salvation is all of grace. From the beginning to the end, the completion of our salvation depends on God's faithfulness and not on ours. Man, I'm so glad for that. Because I'm very unfaithful most of the times to God. But I'm glad it depends on Him. Again, even in salvation, it depends on Him. So I can't get out even if I wanted to get out. Why? Because God's got a hold on me. And if you're a believer, He's got a hold on you. That's why some of you try to run away, and where do you run back to? That's why. You see a dude that's running away, and he keeps going and going and going? Maybe God didn't have a hold on him. Maybe he looked good. Maybe it felt good. Maybe he was cool. But he never... Return. I, I know people that have done that. Because of our salvation is all of grace from beginning to completion. Depends on God's faithfulness. That's great news. Salvation is not the end of the story. It's the beginning. If you're saved, if God has saved you, it's not the end. You just sit there and just, okay, I'm going to enjoy church. We're going to do this. And I, I, I act a certain way and I do certain things. Salvation is not the end of the story of our lives. It's the beginning of a journey. Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the completion of the day of Jesus Christ. During this journey with Jesus on the road to salvation, God has called us to do great things. To live your life in such a way that it points to Him and not yourselves. And if I grasp that, Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are God's workmanship. Man, we're His workmanship. Created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians 2.10. So He's created you to do good works to reflect Him. So if salvation has visited you at one point in your life, and that seals it, by the way, you begin your journey of this salvation to do good works that honor Him and magnify Him. That sentence comes after a radical teaching on grace because if we understand grace, it's going to put in your brains that, hey, I want to do good works. Why? Because I want to honor my king that you were singing about. That's why that matters. Gift of new life. Remember Luke seven forty seven. He who has been forgiven little loves little. If you're a believer here today, you've been forgiven a lot. 
And that's just one of your fruits. That's a proof that you're even saved, that you love. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are fruits that we have because salvation has come upon you. And I love more. And I, 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 I serve more. And when I understand what Jesus has done, man, I want to show him my love. I want to love him. I want to show him that I, that I want to love other people. I want to show him that. And I think a lot of times we resist to me, or I have, just some clear teaching on grace because I, I am afraid of that spiritual apathy. Just being lazy and not wanting to talk or, or, or whatever, you know? If I'm saved by grace, I can't lose my salvation because God's got His whole hand on me. So why should, I, why should I fear man? I know for me, when I fear man, it's because my identity is in man and not in Christ. I mean, that's ultimately the bottom line there. And so if I can, if I can understand, it, you know, it, God saves people he 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 is working to save people in this world and he's gonna do that and you never know he may use you to do that that's why i think you work where you work as a believer to share christ just to live out loud how great he is that's why you live where you live that's why you go to the same coffee shop day in and day out that's why I love that we're meeting here. I mean, I want these teachers to know that we love them, but greater than that, greater than a muffin and a bottled water and a track or a pen, that ultimately God has a plan for their lives. God wants to do something great in their lives, and they may get it. You know, I, I believe that um, the Holy Spirit is working in the lives of, of unbelievers. I believe that. I, I, I believe that the people that you work with and the people we come in contact with and the people you hang out with, you're there to be that voice. And God wants to take them from the dead, lifeless carcass that's, that they are in the sea of sin. You know what you have in common with unbelievers? Sin, right? We all do. And if God has transformed your life to the boat of salvation, that's worth sharing. That's why gospel transformation, if God has saved you and transformed you, I mean, it should be our voice piece. We ought to be excited about that, not hide cowardly behind it. We ought to share our faith boldly. We ought to do that, and you never know what God may do with that. So I was thinking, how can I conclude all of this? What is, what is a way, how, how, how can we shut this down because... Really, you could talk about it for days. About the goodness of God, the love of God, salvation, grace, faith, all those things. And so, I think our sin has orphaned, I'm just going to use that word because I think it's appropriate. Our sin has orphaned us from God. Your sin has done that. It's, it, it's orphaned us from God. But God loves us. And he's provided a reunion with him. And since he's provided a, a reunion, Jesus is the way, the only way, 
to the Father. And He is the one who arranges your adoption. He's the one that adopts Him and not the other way around. It's Him adopting you and not you adopting Him. Okay? It's God doing the adoption. You're the orphan. Okay? God's the parent here in this. Here's the deal. And He has done this even before you were even aware of it. God did this. And you have been adopted. You have been chosen. Okay? You are deeply loved. The papers are signed. The price has been paid. The home has been arranged. And all you have to do is show up. That's all you have to do. I need you, God. That's you agreeing by faith that you need Him. And here's the deal. You showed up, you have to accept that as a gift freely given to Him. You receive Him. You believe His name. And when you do that and you understand that, then you have the right to be called God's child. And that's glorious to understand that. That is sweet. You know why? Because God has rescued you from decay and death and slime and all the junk that you could even imagine is at the bottom of the sea of sin and brought you up and reunited, reunion. Re, he, he, is, he has created a reunion with Him. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. And if you grasp that today, here's the deal. As I was thinking about this today, I'm thinking, man, you're teaching this stuff to a church. Man, everybody's heard this. You know, Every, it, probably everybody in here's heard this. But here's the deal. You showed up today. Man, I don't know why you're here. I have no clue. You know, you came. You're here. You're showing up. If you've never heard this, I want to encourage you by faith, believe in Jesus now and receive Him as your Savior. You showed up. Might as well finish it, right? Let me think about it. God is so sweet and so good to us to allow us to be able to get into the boat of salvation. Let's pray.